Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Well, this morning we begin in uh, the year about 156 AD uh, in a city, and we'll, we're going to talk about a, a man named Polycarp, who was a bishop in this city. He's an old man at the time. He's in his late 80s, we think. And we've talked about this. Christians were being persecuted. They were being accused of all kinds of things, being cannibals, atheists, accused of incest, as a matter of fact. And Polycarp is one of those Christians. In fact, as a bishop, he is a leader of leaders. He's planting churches, and of course, Rome considers him too dangerous to be allowed to live. The problem is that Caesar, over in Rome, he doesn't know who's Christian and who's not. And so, on the ground, locally, Rome collaborates with some of the Jewish synagogues and says to the synagogues, I'll tell you what, you tell us who the Christians are in your neighborhood, and what we'll do is we will we'll turn a blind eye, we'll look the other way as you worship your Hebrew God. And those were hard days for the church. Those were dark, evil days for the church. You might even say satanic days. The enemy was thrilled at what was going on because he loves it when a neighbor turns against another neighbor. He loves that. He loves it when he can scatter the church through fear of persecution. And by the way, that's happening in lots of places across the world. There are people who are terrified to meet and gather with other Christians and do what we're doing right now. They're horrified. They're terrified to do that because of the fear of persecution, imprisonment, torture, or execution. Well, eventually, Polycarp was arrested, of course. The soldiers offered him a deal. They offered him a way out. They said, call Caesar your Lord and make a sacrifice to Caesar, and we will let you live. You'll save your life. Now, Satan would love that too, wouldn't he? Well, Polycarp was brought to the center of town. His hands were tied behind his back, and he was tied to a post. And once more, the soldiers offer him an opportunity to save his life. They say, repent swear loyalty to Caesar, curse the atheists, think of your age. And Polycarp answers them, 86 years I've served him. 86 years I've served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I betray my king and my savior? And right there in front of his hometown, in front of all these otherwise peace-loving men and women, his neighbors, people he knew well, Now they've turned on him, and now they're cheering and chanting for him to be put to death. And he was. And Polycarp was killed. We'll come back to the story of of Polycarp. But uh, this morning, again, we find ourselves in the book of Revelation in a series called All Things New. What we studied last week is how John the seer, John the author, he uh, has this vision of Christ, and he writes it down. He writes it down, and, and we saw that in this vision... Christ holds the church in his right hand, that he's not done with her. He's not, that, that, that no matter what Caesar says, no matter what, what Satan does, no matter what is being said out there about the church, Jesus is not done with the church. And that's an important message for us to hold on to, I think. And John sees all of these amazing things, and his eyewitness testimony is what we have as the book of Revelation. And he's going to send it out to seven churches. That's what Revelation is, okay? Now today, 
we're going to look at three of those letters. Okay, we're going to look at three of those letters to the seven churches. Now, in a perfect world, we would take a week on each individual church. Unfortunately, we can't. So what we're going to do instead is we're going to spend three weeks on the seven letters. And so today, we're going to focus on three of them. And, and so think of today as part one of three, okay? A, a, sort of a mini-series on the churches of, of Asia. So today what we're going to do is we're going to cover Smyrna, Pergamum, and Philadelphia. And today what we're going to do is simply we're just going to ask a bunch of questions of the text. We're going to work our way through these letters. We're going to ask a bunch of questions. And I think that when we're done, you're going to see why we took the approach that we did, okay? So the first question we want to ask just by way of setting this up, where did these letters go? To whom were they, were they sent? The answer is actually back in chapter 1, uh, where John wrote, I was on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum and Thyatira, Sardis and Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, something that might interest you, I think, all seven of these churches are located on a postal route. Not all of the towns or cities in those days are connected by roads, but these seven uh, were. And so here's a map of those. And, uh, and, and so that made it easier to visit the churches. It made it easier to deliver mail on behalf of Caesar. Uh, another question, again, by way of context, why these seven churches? Like, are these the only churches that are left in these days? And, and the answer to that is no. There are many churches, uh, of course. You know from the New Testament that there's many, many churches we could name. You know that there's a ch- a letter, there are letters to the church in Corinth and, and Galatia and Philippi and Colossae and Thessalonica and on and on and on. And so most likely what we have here is we have the seven churches with which John was personally connected. He knew these people. He had visited them, perhaps. Some people think that he may have helped start these, these churches— well, another question we, we should ask, what's the point? What's the purpose of the letters? Like, what's, what is John trying to communicate? And, and I think we can see this when we sort of discern the pattern that each of the letters follows. Because they do follow a similar structure. There's a form that, or a, or a template that these letters seem to follow. First, Christ is introduced. And he's introduced with this grand, sweeping, majestic, glorious language, very kingly language. And then Christ will go on and he'll say what he knows about these churches, whether it's good or bad. He'll, he'll say what he knows about them, and then he'll instruct them either to be faithful or to persevere, or he'll tell them to repent and come back to him. And then he'll end each letter with an invitation to hear him, and to, to, he'll share some promises at the end of these letters. In fact, the, the form of these letters, it's, is, it's important. It's familiar. Because in these days, when Caesar wanted to get some important information to a town, if he wanted to communicate something with the leaders of a town, he would send a letter that sounded very, very much like this, with this grand sort of sweeping epic language about Caesar on his throne. And the letters would follow the same format, the same pattern. And it's like John copies them. And so it's not a coincidence. There's actually, it seems to me, something kind of bold and subversive going on in the writing of these seven letters to the seven churches. Yes, these letters are going to encourage the churches. Yes, they'll strengthen the churches. And at the same time, there's also a bit of a dig happening at Caesar. There's a bit of a critique of of Rome happening here. It's actually Jesus who's on the throne. 
not Caesar. It's Jesus who is Lord, not, not Caesar. The question that we're going to focus the bulk of our time on this morning is what's in them? What's in the letters? What, is, what do the letters say? And what we're going to do is I'm going to read through most of these letters again and just going to pause and make some comments because I think that would be helpful. They're actually meant to be read aloud, and so we do need to do that. And so let's begin with the letter to the church in Smyrna. Uh, we pick up in chapter 2, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who's the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Like, these are the words of the one who didn't stay dead. That's who's writing to you. That's who's speaking to you right now. The one who, who they killed and he didn't stay dead. Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Like, I know your suffering. I know what it's like. I know your faithfulness has been costly. I know it. I see you. And I know that it feels like you have nothing. But you're rich. Believe me, Christ says, you are, you are rich. He says, I know about the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Okay? They are a synagogue of Satan. Verse 10, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. The devil will do that. Okay? The devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. So here's Christ telling the church in Smyrna, like, I'm going to be honest with you guys, it's going to get worse. The persecution is going to get worse. Just like Daniel and his friends, when they were in Babylon, they were tested for ten days. Some of you remember that when we studied the book of Daniel. They were tested, after, and after ten days, they didn't betray God. They had remained faithful to God. In the same way, it's like the church, you're going to be tested, but don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Well, we'll stop there, and we'll look now at the letter to the church in Pergamum. There, and we begin in uh, verse 12 of chapter 2, Christ tells John to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, these are the words of him who has the, the sharp, double-edged sword. Here's Christ saying, the one who's talking with you is armed. All right? He's carrying a sword. He's carrying a sharp, double-edged sword. That's, that's who's speaking to you right now. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Okay? I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Now, this is probably a reference to a building called the Altar of Zeus. And this was a temple dedicated to Zeus, the father of the Roman gods, and it was in the, the city of Pergamum. And it was way at the top of Pergamum, as a matter of fact. And people would travel for miles and miles around to go and worship Zeus there. In fact, the building even looks like a throne. That's probably what, what Christ is talking about here. Now the letter continues, and Jesus says, And yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. There's another reference to Satan. Here's Christ saying, I remember when the persecution broke out. I remember what it was like. I remember when my servant Antipas was put to death. He was one of the first martyrs in your town. I remember that. But even though in those days, you remained true to my name. Well, here's where Jesus begins to, to shift his tone in verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. 
Now, most commentators, people smarter than me, believe that this teaching of the Nicolaitans, the teaching of Balaam, these go back, these are probably the same thing, and they go back to this story in the book of Numbers. Way back in the book of Numbers, the king of the Moabites, an enemy of Israel, and he wanted to win. And so he hires this prophet named Balaam to come and to pronounce a curse over God's people. Except it doesn't work. He's delayed. You know that his donkey doesn't cooperate, if you're familiar with the story. So his, when, his, when he failed to curse Israel, Balaam goes back to King Balak and he says, look, I wasn't able to, to curse them, so here's another idea that we can use to take Israel down. Send some of the Moabite women, send some of the food that's been sacrificed to idols, and the king does. And it, in, it, in large measure, it works. What they realize in this story is that Moab couldn't scatter God's people through military might. He couldn't, he couldn't scare them on the battlefield. And so what they did is instead they defeated them in the bedroom. They defeated them in, in the dining room. They enticed God's people away from God. And there are some people in Pergamum here in the book of Revelation who are teaching people to do that. And they're saying, look, God doesn't care what you eat. God doesn't care who you sleep with. He doesn't care what you do with your body. It's no big deal. God is a big, busy God. He does not care what you do. And Jesus says, verse 16, repent, therefore. Repent of that. Uh, Otherwise, I will soon come to you, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Like, turn from this thing. It's got to stop. You got to put this thing down and never pick it back up again. Otherwise, I'm coming for you with my sword. Jesus says that. I'm coming for you with my sword. Now, what is Jesus' sword? We should pause here for a second. Is this an actual sword that we're talking about? No, it's not. Uh, we saw back in, in chapter 1, Jesus, uh, it, there's in the vision, Jesus has a sword coming from his mouth. So it's not a literal sword. It's a sign. It's a symbol. Jesus does his correcting. He does his fighting, not with military might, not with violence, not with murder and death. He does battle with ideas with words, with truth. Now again, we're going to come back to Pergamum later, but let's now turn, turn to the church in Philadelphia. The church in Philadelphia. Verse 7 in chapter 3, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who's holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds, See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Now, for many of John's uh, audience, they'll recall a story in the book of Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 22, he tells a story about this guy, Eliakim. And Eliakim is sort of a protector or a hero for uh, for Israel. And Eliakim was going to be given a key to the house of David. And that key was the key to the storehouse in David's castle. It was the, the key to the storehouse where all the grain was kept, all of the good stuff was, was kept there, so that this guy, Eliakim, he would have the authority, because he carries the key, to feed and to care for God's people. And so Isaiah says, Isaiah says uh, that Eliakim will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. 
Okay? Now, John takes that picture, he takes that story, and he kind of repurposes it, he kind of recycles it, and he puts that on Jesus. Like Eliakim was kind of a type or a shadow or a forerunner of, of Jesus Christ. And, he, and, and John knows that for his readers, that's a very powerful uh, claim. It's, it's Christ who has that key. It's Christ who has that authority. It's Christ who opens and, and closes the storehouses of, of God's kingdom. Jesus does that. And he says in verse 8, I know that you have little strength, yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Jesus is saying, like, I know what they're saying. I know what they accuse you of being. I know what they accuse you of doing. I know they think that you're a cult, and they're wrong, and they'll learn, and they'll see that all this time I have loved you. They kept saying that because that all of your suffering, all the stuff you're going through, it proves that I don't love you. They're wrong. They will see when they fall down at your feet, they will acknowledge that I have loved you. I've loved you. Well, he goes on, since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Here's Christ saying that there is a time coming when the whole world will be tested. That's coming, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be bad, but not for you, because I'm going to keep you from it. I'll keep you safe from it. This is a huge relief after what this church has been through. Now, again, we're gonna, we'll pause there on, on the letter. We've seen now kind of the gist of what's in the letters, and I think it's time for us to step back, and we need to ask, what is it that these letters have in common? What do these three letters have in common? And I think it has to do with the source of the problem or, or, that they're facing, or the, the nature, perhaps, the nature of the problems that they're facing. Here's what I mean. In Smyrna, you've got a synagogue, you've got a group of Jews outside the church who are collaborating with Rome to do the church harm, okay? That's Smyrna. In Pergamum, the whole town out there is full of idols, it's full of idolatry and false worship and false teaching, all kinds of bad stuff, and it's made its way into the church. That, its teaching has made its way into the church. That's Pergamum. And in Philadelphia, again, it's another group outside the church. Christ calls them, again, a synagogue of Satan who are out there, and they treat the church like it's a cult. They, they uh, persecute the church. And what it seems to me is that for these three churches, the danger that they face, the thing that they have in common is that the danger that they face is external. Okay, you with me on that? The danger they face is out there. Now, it's true that many of the problems that we face, many of the things that we wrestle with as a church are going to be internal problems, internal dangers, but not all of them are. Not all of them are. Many of the dangers, many of the threats that the church faces are actually out there. Also, I, I probably is worth saying, nobody wants to be that church or wants to be that preacher who stands at the front of the room and says like, yo, watch out for that. Watch out for those guys. Those guys are bad. Watch out for that false teaching. Watch out for that group. Beware of them. Nobody wants to do that. However, Christ does in these letters. We do need to be warned because there are very real dangers out there, and we have to be smart. 
We have to be careful. We have to pay attention. We have to be vigilant. Now, why is that? Is there a, is there a, a danger beneath the danger? Is there a problem beneath the problem uh, that, that Christ has named in these, uh, in these three letters? And I think so. Okay? Quick review. In Pergamum, the church meets in a city where Jesus says, Satan has his throne. In both Smyrna and Philadelphia, the danger, uh, the people that are making things hard for the church, are a synagogue of Satan. In fact, Jesus tells the church in Smyrna, the devil is going to put some of you in prison to test you for 10 days. In other words, it's not a coincidence that all of these things are happening to them. It's not a coincidence that all these, these churches are suffering. These are not just random, like, isolated instances of, of persecution. Someone or something is behind these, and Christ names him. He says it's Satan. It is Satan himself who's, who's doing this stuff. And I know how it sounds to say that, but it is really important that we hear this. Make no mistake, Satan means to steal and kill and destroy. And because the church stands in his way, he hates the church. Satan hates the church. Do you believe that? He hates us. He hates the church and what we're trying to do. He hates that the church is on the move. He hates the idea that it may someday be on earth as it is in heaven. He hates that. He hates that the church is on mission and and changing lives and forming communities and doing life together and helping one another become more and more like Jesus. He hates that. And he hates that the church is out there relieving poverty. He, He hates that there are Christians out there who are giving generously to their churches instead of spending it all on themselves. He he hates that we are naming names and bringing down corrupt leaders, that we are sharing the gospel. He hates that normal people who wake up on Monday morning and we go to work and we work hard in our vocations and we're trying to do life together and some of us are trying to raise families that love Jesus. He hates that. And he will stop at nothing and he will do anything to take the church out. And that is why we should be concerned about what's going on out there, okay? Through these letters, through these three letters, Jesus sounds an alarm. And I think this is not, this is not a warning just for the ancient world, although it was. Uh, I love this from Eugene Peterson. He wrote a book on, on Revelation, and in it he compares the threats to the ancient church with the threats that the church in our day faces. And here's his conclusion. He says, There's no evidence in the annals of ancient Israel, in the pages of the New Testament, that churches were ever much better or worse than they are today. You know, uh, a random selection of seven churches in any century, including our own, would turn up something very much like the seven churches to which St. John is pastor. I think he's right. I think that's true. And and, and so at this point, I want to pause so that we can ask, well, what about now? Like, what is out there that we should be concerned about now? I think we have an opportunity. We need to pause and think about this for a minute. Uh, Are there any dangers in 2024 out there that the church should be concerned about? Uh, What might the devil's schemes look like in 2024? I don't know how you would answer that question, but I, I feel compelled to answer a few. For example, there seems to be out there a new kind of fundamentalism, okay, and this new kind of fundamentalism, I think, comes from, it's coming from secular uh, psychologists 
and, and teachers and culture critics who want us to be tougher and more assertive and take more responsibility for your life. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it sounds very much, very compatible with Christianity. Some of these teachers actually will hold up Jesus as a role model. Now, is that satanic in itself? Absolutely not. It's not. That's not what I'm saying. But Satan would love for you to decide that Jesus is just an archetype or a symbol or a metaphor or just a role model and not the actual real living risen Savior. He would love that. Satan would love it if you take your Bible and put it away and you replace your Bible with Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. He would love that. You know, if you become a kind of a culture warrior and you call that Christianity, he would love it. He would love for the church to shift its focus away from Jesus, away from mission, and onto attacking the left, attacking, uh, you know, wokeness, attacking the mainstream media. He would love that. Now, at the same time, there is a kind of a new sort of progressiveness that I think the church should be concerned about as well, and I think we should name it. The message here is that you need to accept uh, me, you need to affirm me and all of my choices, and if you try to correct me, if you try to challenge me, you're exploiting your power, you're exploiting your privilege. If you offend me, that's a form of oppression, and it's probably trauma, And in a lot of circles, this sounds like love. It sounds like kindness and tolerance. Now, is tolerance satanic? Absolutely not. Tolerance is a Christian virtue. It's a Christian value. But Satan would love it if the church in our culture became synonymous with corruption and abuse and hypocrisy. He would love it if, as a culture, we can tolerate anybody and anything except the church. He would love that, wouldn't he? Satan would love it if you deconstruct your way out of the faith so that you become your own Bible and so that Jesus only ever thinks and acts and talks exactly like you. Satan would love that. Satan would love to weaponize uh, hate speech laws in order to silence the church and punish uh, some Christian leaders for teaching that there is such a thing as God's design for family or sexuality or identity. Satan would love to see that happen. It is out there, and we should pay attention. We should be vigilant. There's one more I want to mention that I think is actually especially relevant in in cities, and it's gentrification. I'm convinced this thing is a scheme of Satan. I'm convinced of that. Here's what I mean. Greedy banks, greedy landlords, real estate developers drive the cost of living in a city way, way up through property values and rents and stuff like that so that the poor can't afford to live and the church can't afford to stay. Just so you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fully prepared that any, of the, any one of these days, I'm going to get a call from the Anglican Diocese saying, you know what, Mike, it's been great. However, uh, the building's been sold to a condo developer because they can afford to pay us a hundred times what you guys can pay. And so, yes, eventually it'll be bulldozed and it'll be turned into condos for, you know, wealthy professionals. And I would not be surprised if that happens. Now, is that satanic in itself? No, that's not what I'm saying. Okay? That's not what I'm saying. Professionals need housing as well. But so do the poor. So do young singles. So do middle-class uh, families. So do, so do immigrants and refugees. 
Satan loves to see people lose their homes, end up on the street, or end up in tents. He loves that. He loves the feeling that some people get when they drive through the downtown and they see a tent encampment encampment, and they just go like, man, if they would just clean up their lives, if they would have just made different choices, they wouldn't be in this mess. Satan loves that. Satan loves it when people in cities turn to suicide or addiction or crime because they can't cope or can't pay their bills. He loves it. And he would love to see the churches leave cities uh, because they can't afford to stay. He would love that. Now, there's, of course, there's other issues, other dangers, other threats uh, that we could take time to talk about. Consumerism. We could talk about whiteness as a system itself. We could talk about social media or advertising or gambling or mental illness. We could talk about substances or payday loan places. We could talk about corruption within government or within police. We could talk about the reality that there are dudes bringing guns to church, okay? That's where we are. People are bringing guns to church. None of the people involved in these uh, situations and these scenarios. None of these people is satanic per se. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm convinced that Satan will use any of these to steal and kill and destroy a culture and to scatter the church. I'm convinced of it. And that means we can't afford to be careless or lazy. We can't afford to minimize these things. We can't afford to bury our heads in the sand. Faithfulness requires the church to be vigilant against these threats. That's what Jesus means for these three churches uh, to hear in these three letters today. And what's great is that after everything that he's said to them, all the hard things that he's said, and all the things he's warned them about, these three letters end with an invitation. Jesus is like, do you hear what the Spirit says? Yes, I've, I've warned you about the enemy. Yes, the danger is real, but I love you more than Satan hates you. Do you know that? Yes, his voice is loud. Yes, he's powerful. But do you hear my voice? Do you hear the voice of my spirit? So listen to me because I've got some promises for you. And and the way I'd like to wrap up this message this morning is with some of those promises. Not talking about the schemes of the devil, okay? Where I want to end is by talking about the promises of Christ for the church. Now, what has Jesus promised these three churches? Here's what he says to the church in Philadelphia. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so no one will take your crown. The one who's victorious, I'll make them a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I'll write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus has some promises for the church in in Pergamum, too. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who's victorious. I'll give some of the hidden manna, some of the good stuff, the real manna, the really good stuff. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, real quick, what's that stone about? Well, in in the ancient world, uh, in some of these cities, if you were invited to like a secret exclusive feast, if you were invited, the organizers would give you a little white stone. And that stone was your invitation. It was your ticket. You don't get in without that white stone. And Jesus is saying, if you hold on, if you're faithful, I'll give you a new stone. 
I'll give you a new stone. You'll get into the real banquet, the real feast, the real celebration, which we know coming up is the wedding celebration of the Lamb. Now, earlier I I told you about Polycarp. And Polycarp was this bishop, if you recall, who was uh, killed because he's too dangerous to Rome for them to allow him to live. And they killed him, and they did it violently and painfully and, and very publicly. Uh, what I didn't say is that Polycarp grew up in Smyrna. Now, Smyrna, the church in Smyrna, was one of the, one of the churches that received a letter that we, we read today. We, we read that one today. And, and when that letter was written, Polycarp was just a young boy, maybe, maybe a teenager. And I can imagine little Polycarp sitting there on the floor of the gathering, because he's too little to, to get a chair, but he's in there in, on the floor of the gathering, and one day, boom, somebody busts into the room. And they're out of breath, and they're carrying a scroll, and they say, oh my goodness, a letter from John. And they break the seal, and they open the scroll and unroll it. They read the message out loud in the gathering, and they read it again the next week, and they read it again the next week, because in the letter to the church in Smyrna, Jesus promises them, he says, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who's victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. And I can't help thinking that that promise, it's got to be ringing in in Polycarp's ears as he's growing up and, and as a follower of Jesus. I can't help but think that Polycarp is holding on to that promise be faithful even to the point of death. I'll give you life as your victor's crown. I can't help but think he's holding on to that as he becomes a leader in the church in Smyrna, and he's watching the culture become more and more hostile to the gospel. I can't help but think that he's holding on to that promise as he's there in the center of town, tied to a post, and they're getting ready to set him on fire. They're getting ready to stab him. I can't help but think that promise is ringing in his ears. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Uh, At the end of his life, as he's tied there, just before they lit the fire, he lifted his head, turns his eyes to heaven, and he he prays. And witnesses wrote down what he said, and, and part of it is this, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body, through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. I bless you. Polycarp says as he's about to die. I bless you and glorify you along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. To you, with him, through the Holy Ghost, be glory both now and forever. Amen. Polycarp was faithful to the point of death, and Polycarp has received his victor's crown. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.